Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and your host for this episode. This episode of First State Insights is part of IPA's Visions of Recovery series, which features conversations on five important questions. What's one thing you think will be changed for good after the pandemic? What's one thing you hope will change? What needs to happen for this change to occur? What are you doing to make it happen? And how can folks get involved? My guest is Dr. Victor Perez, who is an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Delaware, with specializations in environmental justice, health and illness, and the sociology of risk. On October 25, 2021, Victor and I spoke about ongoing pandemic response and recovery efforts from a sociological perspective, including the critical role childcare plays in supporting workers and families, and how the pandemic exacerbated the disproportionate health outcomes experienced in historically marginalized communities. Let's get to the conversation. Good morning, Victor. Thanks for joining today. Good morning. So as we get started, could you let us know who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Victor Perez. I'm an associate professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. From your vantage point, I guess, you know, as we we're still, I don't know if we're in the middle of the pandemic or at some latter you know, stage of the end of the pandemic, hopefully, but as we look towards recovery, I mean, what are some changes you think are in store for us moving forward? I could start by saying, you know, sociologists are keenly interested in disruption. Disruption reveals the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses of our social institutions. It makes clear, clearer to a wider audience, I would argue, the types of inequalities that we have that are the sources of a lot of those vulnerabilities. It also makes clearer the need to address them. You know, whether or not that happens is certainly something we're interested in, in keeping an eye on because disruption allows for an opportunity to rebuild in ways to make things better, to work better in the future. And I would argue in the disaster field, even in public health and a, a few other fields that deal with you know, disruptions, either on minor or major scales, we don't always do a great job of building back better. We tend to recreate vulnerabilities. And I've always found that fascinating. And I, I think it's because the sorts of changes that we might argue we need are, you know, so at the root of the way our society is built, they would require substantial revolutionary, you know, changes in order to be built from the ground up and rebuilt in a way that would not only make us more resilient, but would address the types of inequalities and vulnerabilities that allow for the disproportionate impact of uh, a lot of these, these issues. So, Black and brown communities, for example, are always disproportionately uh, more impacted by disaster events, by public health events, and so on. So, you know, that disruption allows for an opportunity to build back better. We don't always do a great job of it, but one thing that happened that I was you know, particularly interested in were what we call cascading disasters and how during the pandemic, because of our relatively lackluster response to it and, and uh, the overflow of hospital beds and the lack of space, particularly early on. I remember, you know, being in the mid-Atlantic, I remember reading a lot of stories, whether or not people remember this, I'm not sure, but in the summer and into the fall of 2020, I remember reading a lot of stories about New York City and how, you know, 
there were literally bodies in freezer trucks, you know, lining the streets and so on. Now, that's the sort of thing I'm getting at here is, is our inability to deal with this level of disruption was profound. More recently, when Hurricane Ida hit and down in you know, the New Orleans area, we saw the pandemic and that disaster event come together and reveal even heightened vulnerabilities where we had hospitals that were already full. And so folks who were trying to evacuate or be evacuated didn't have anywhere to go if they needed a hospital bed and those sorts of issues. I mean, it was really a a brick wall that we hit and it revealed some serious weaknesses in, in hospitals and in the way that we deal with cascading disasters like a pandemic and Hurricane Ida. So I'm hopeful that we're learning from that and not in just that we would want to be able to have more hospital beds so that when there is a need to evacuate, that can be done more efficiently. But address you know the issue more at the root cause and think about, well, what are the alternatives to evacuation? Perhaps instead of recreating the wheel, and now we're seeing, particularly with Hurricane Ida, with the warming of the waters there, even less time for people to prepare and evacuate because the storm came so quickly. I think it was a handful of days. And the amount of time that you would need to evacuate effectively simply wasn't there. Start thinking about alternatives to what we usually do and recreate. So things like manage retreat. And and that's a very complicated issue, particularly when you talk about culture and finance and and, uh, people's history and so on. Thinking about relocation in in a way that's managed, in a way that's planned to me is at the forefront of thinking about how things might change in terms of dealing with these sorts of disasters and pandemics and cascading disasters. But it's also a very controversial issue. But that's what I'm hoping we start to do more of is to think more about, well, yeah, you could maybe have better access to hospitals or bigger hospitals or whatever it might be. But that's just really delaying what I would argue with certain like climate change impacts and so on, just delaying the inevitable. And there are better solutions that require more time and that we should try and start now. So you mentioned these disasters, disruption creates opportunity to kind of rethink how how we do a variety of things. And you said it's very tough to build back better. What I heard you say was, you know, we do build back, but we tend to build back with those vulnerabilities in place and kind of solidified even more. Are there things about the pandemic that I don't know if hope's the right word, but give you a sense that this time could be different. I mean, I think there's been a lot written about all that could be different moving out of the pandemic. But from your vantage point, are there things we can look at the pandemic and say, yeah, it is a different event that might give us a different outcome than all those previous times when we built back and kind of you know solidified those vulnerabilities in place? You know, I think one thing we started doing better, and it's not exactly my area of expertise as a sociologist, but one thing that we definitely started to do better was to think about how our aging population needs a particular type of care. And, you know, again, I I, I think that, I, I don't want to say it was an unmitigated disaster, but I think that our response to the pandemic, uh, the, the rolling out of the vaccine and, and so on, 
uh, could have been done, you know, much, much better. And the politics are always so strong and the money and, and all of that. But one thing I thought that we did pretty well was getting seniors vaccinated quickly, as quickly as, as possible, I think, given the circumstances, political and otherwise. And I was encouraged by that. The uh, opportunity for the most vulnerable, in addition to other groups as well, who might have pre-existing health conditions, but the most vulnerable being aging and elderly populations to this particular type of public health threat. I was encouraged by the way that they were prioritized and vaccines were rolled out with them. So, you know, I, I think I'm, I think that by looking at that particular success, if you will, we can begin to think more about how we can do better and by addressing certain types of vulnerabilities in our society. So, you know, vaccines roll out with prioritizing elderly and, and just aging folks in general, was encouraging. You were able to see how we responded more effectively, at least, helped a group in our, in our society that's, uh, that's vulnerable. So we need to start thinking uh, in those ways with other groups. And another group we might think about is younger people, you know, children, for example, whose lives, even though the coronavirus itself impacted, you know, young, young people, the least in terms of at least serious illness and death. So I, I think in some ways, because of the, the health outcomes among that group weren't as devastating and as fast and so on, we thought about them differently in terms of how to respond. Of course, it requires all kinds of additional layers of testing for vaccines and clinical tests and so on. But one thing that really shocked me was how little attention overall there's been to the well-being of children outside of getting coronavirus with the level of disruption that they experienced in their lives. So, you know, if you're a parent of young kids and even kids who are in school who started doing teleschool and all of that from home, but if you're a parent of a kid who's at home, who's either at home from daycare or at home from school and then adjusting somehow, you couldn't help but be completely exposed to the massive impact on their lives. And it's funny because I, I think that that impact is substantial. And I know that a lot of young people, you know, had stress and emotional duress and psychological duress and so on, like never before, particularly six or seven months into the, the pandemic itself. And because they weren't having serious illness or dying as quickly or as much from coronavirus, in a way, we sort of downplayed that latent impact of that disruption, you know, having folks home in lockdown. And in my view, those have been some of the most substantial, like they absolutely have taken their toll on people's health. So I was encouraged by our response for, you know, older folks could have been much better but at least in terms of vaccine rollout. But then I was surprised by the way young people were sort of thought about because of their situation. What do you think are some of the things we need to kind of start considering or what are some of the avenues to kind of change that situation moving forward? Uh, you know, maybe that starts right now or maybe that's in preparation for the next disaster event. Uh, what kind of change would you have in mind in this area of 
you know, children, uh, younger adults, uh, people like that, and the impact of these kind of disasters on them? Well, I mean, it was, you know, clear as, as day when how family, the institution, you know, the family and work have historically been built as separate institutions. You know, when they came crashing together, it couldn't have been clearer for a lot of families. And the way that people had to adjust to that, I remember early on in the pandemic talking to my wife, we, we were saying, okay, it'll be a few weeks, you know, so we'll just kind of go into survival mode and we'll make it. And then when we realized it's going to be a few months and then this could be years, the idea of going into survival mode didn't work. Yet there were no viable alternatives to a healthy, viable alternatives to this, this massive disruption and this overlapping of social institutions that generally, you know, conflict with one another, trying to teach your kids, care for your kids, work and stay healthy and so on from your living room. You know, all of you together, it just, it just was painfully obvious that it didn't work. So I hope that childcare centers, the pay for childcare workers, the idea of childcare and the support that families need in order to access it will change. Like a universal, you know, family care fund, or uh, I don't know exactly what people are calling it these days, but childcare is this really, again, not an area I'm an expert in as, a, as an academic, but as a parent, it's this really interesting and bizarre institution in a lot of ways because it's crucial like so many other gendered institutions and so on, but absolutely crucial for parents to be able to function the way that our society generally is set up, whatever the household, however it's composed, but if all the adults are working outside the home, it is absolutely crucial. I mean, having young children at home when you're trying to work is almost impossible. Yet we pay historically childcare laborers very little, you know, basically poverty wages and very little opportunity for security and for longevity. I think that, you know, the turnover rate is, is extraordinary. So that needs to be subsidized somehow. You know, this, if, if we're, if, if we're going to pretend that, like our lives don't overlap with work and family and so on, if we're going to somehow keep them separated, there's got to be some sort of universal support for families to, to assist their children and and aid in that as opposed to the current system which is again sort of a in my view for lack of a better word sort of a, just a bizarrely exploitative industry where people are paid very little daycare costs for a lot of people are substantial for a lot of families so it costs a lot yet the folks who work there generally don't make really you know sustainable incomes that to me is just such a an odd combination and yet that's what we rely on. And something that vulnerable is, is absolutely going to be shook by these types of, of disruptions. Uh, I know now a lot of daycares have closed. A lot of daycares struggle to, to even hire people and keep them because, and this is, this is in no way denigrating any type of work, but if you can be paid 18, 19 bucks an hour to deliver pizzas, even though that might not necessarily have, you know, be the future you want long-term, in the short term, you're going to make 
twice as much money doing that than as an entry-level daycare worker. That that just, it just the whole thing just doesn't make sense to me. So I'd like to see a universal family support in a way where everybody had access to childcare and that the industry itself could support its workers better. I want to go back to something you said about, you know, sociology is in large part or maybe mostly analyzing data that's historical. And I, I wonder, you know, looking at your own work, uh, maybe like personal, professional interests, when and how that study of the historical with this pandemic in mind might begin for you? What, you know, might you focus in on or what might you be most curious to read in a year or two years as we move forward? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I remember there were some debates online, academic debates online about this very issue where a handful of prominent journals solicited articles and studies about the pandemic and changes that people were experiencing in health and the environment and uh, education, gendered systems of work and, and family care and so on. And there was a, a lively debate about, is this, is this really timely? Like this is just happening now and you're asking for journal articles about, you know, the way the pandemic is impacting society. And some people supported that effort saying, you know, sociology is well equipped to study rapid changes as they happen. Other people were saying that, you know, we don't even have our, our heads wrapped around what's going on. We can't even start to write about this uh, in an academic form, at least. You could certainly do things to try and address issues on a micro or macro level in the moment, but to start to you know think about them and write about them in an academic form, you know, that we need time. We need hindsight to to patiently reflect on these things and to gather data and, and so on. And then there were people who were highlighting the fact that academia is a gendered hierarchical institution. And that even though both people are at home, if you have, say, male and, uh, you know, what, how, however you want to compose the family, but if you have academics at home who are making up a family and it's a, a gendered family in, in a particular way that there's a hierarchy, traditionally speaking, female, you know, women academics still doing more care at home, still being paid less and so on, that it, when, you, when you start asking for journal articles during the pandemic, you're going to increase that inequality. You're going to get journal articles from men. Uh, and I think there's actually good evidence that shows the journal submissions in, in a lot of the social science arenas uh, reflected that. So some people saying, you know, it's, it's actually predatory in a lot of ways and it's, it's harmful. So all that said, I think for me, you know, when I, when I say that data is historical, what I mean is that even if you capture it right then and there, if you're talking about social institutions or behaviors, of course, those tend to have some stability to them and some patterns where you could use that data with the understanding that they not only reflect that very moment, but likely a short time in the future. But in sort of a theoretically, you know, philosophical, empirical sense, once you've collected that data, it is historical data. Uh, I'm really I'm, I'm really keenly interested to see how we were able to grasp the relationship between 
because of the pandemic, the relationship between communities' disproportionate exposure to environmental hazards and their health outcomes. I think one of the things that the pandemic has exacerbated are the health outcomes in marginalized, historically marginalized communities. And through that sort of entree, if you will, there's a, a more of an opportunity to focus on the local environmental conditions in a community that promote higher illness rates and death rates, partly being the cumulative you know, toxic experience of, of places that have exposure to soil contamination, air contamination, water pollution, lack of access to green space, uh, more of a challenging access to uh, healthcare, quality healthcare, quality food, et cetera, because black and brown communities and, and others have been disproportionately impacted in terms of el- illness and death by coronavirus. It's an opportunity also to better study the uh, local environmental conditions that exacerbated, uh, to a degree, of course, but exacerbated that disproportionate impact. And so folks start to realize that, wow, well, asthma rates are higher because, you know, dust and, and PM 2.5 particulate matter is higher, which also creates more of a susceptibility to coronavirus, which X, Y, and Z. So, I, you know, that cumulative impact, I, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how our experiences through the pandemic allow for a better, better study of those issues. And for kind of the general public, what would it mean for the general public to kind of think and act like a sociologist and kind of understanding and navigating disruption and recovery moving forward? What does the field kind of have to provide to the public about how to look at disasters and disruption and recovery? I think for me, one of the points of, I think, empowerment using a sociological perspective comes on its constant focus of the interplay between agency and, and structure. One of the first things I try and do in introduction to sociology and other courses that I teach is to get students to think a little bit less about individualism, a little bit less about agency, and a little bit more about structure. And then we circle back to that point of intersection of how agency and structure, agency and institutions are, are effectively the way you know, people have to live their lives. So a, a simple example I do is I talk about the disparities in maternal and infant mortality rates. So if you look at US data, generally speaking, uh, Black or African-American women and Black or African-American babies have roughly twice the infant mortality rate of other, of other racial groups. And you can't explain that by talking about individuals. You can't explain that by saying, you know, Black moms behave in a way that's X, Y, and Z that results in maternal and, and uh, child deaths, you know, more often or something. Because that's simply not the case. You know, that's a racist and, and, and just silly thing to say. You have to look at structural conditions that create and recreate those outcomes over time. And so infant mortality rate has gone down some with, um, and maternal mortality rate has gone down some with all groups over uh, recent decades. But the stability in the, in, the, in the disparity between Black and African-American women and babies and other racial groups has generally been there. That stability is social structure. 
what that what I mean by that is those outcomes over time that tend to be consistent are a direct result of how our society is set up in a way uh, that gives black moms and babies a particular type of, of health experience. So I try to get students to start thinking about it in those terms. And, and I think pretty quickly they get a sense of what agency and structure and how they interact, what that means for their lives. And so they start to think about what their opportunities and constraints are in social terms. And I think that for the general public, you know, that birth of the sociological imagination can be very empowering. Acting on it can be very challenging. That's one of the things that at the end of the semester of my intro course, I often talk about is you probably have more questions than answers at this point in our semester. Because creating change is difficult. Uh, institutional change is difficult and it's slow and it's stressful and it takes time and effort and so on. So, you know, I would, I, I often say, but that isn't the reason why we can't begin to think about ways to do those things. But the first lesson is in agency and structure and thinking about how they interact, but also how they're different. Uh, and I think that that, that that allows people to collectively begin to mobilize. When you realize that your position and structure is similar to other people, that gives you an opportunity to sort of gain and, and, and mobilize on a collective level, which then can lead to institutional change. So I'm hoping like parents of young children and others, you know, they've been commiserating online now and sharing their experiences in ways. And maybe from that, we can generate some novel ideas on how to address childcare, for example. Well, I hope that we are up to the challenge and that, uh, you know, as you said, there's the tendency to build back and not always better, but hopefully there's some mobilizing to happen out of this. And I really appreciate, Victor, you sharing your perspectives on recovery and where we are and where we might be. So thanks again for joining me. That was my pleasure. To learn more about Dr. Perez's work, visit his website at sites.udel.edu slash Victor P. For more information about the Institute for Public Administration, including our Recover Delaware initiative, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks again for listening today. Reach out with comments, subscribe to First Aid Insights, and tune in again soon. Take care.